Today we are in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to finish up the chapter today in our unexpected series as we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount. So if you brought a Bible or you've got a Bible app, open it up to Matthew 6. As you're opening to Matthew 6, I want to ask, any of you willing to admit that you are a bit of a worry wart? Okay, yeah, a few hands go up. All right, my mom used to be a horrible worry wart. She is a lot better than she used to be, all right? But she would confess, she would admit that she used to be really, really bad. I think it was like in 1998, uh, some guy released a book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. My dad bought that for her. Uh, Like, hey, really, my wife, I love you. Calm down, all right? Because she worried about everything. I I remember it was sometimes it was over small stuff. Uh, You know, it could just be like things with home, getting supper ready. She was a school teacher, so it might be related to, you know, school or the kids or, or administration issues. But sometimes it was a little bigger. Like when I had a driver's license, I, she would worry constantly, fearing that I was going to get in a wreck. Uh, I, I discovered that she could not fall asleep until she heard me come in the door. So if my parents had given me like a midnight curfew, sure enough, at like 11.59, I'd walk in, shut the door, and then my mom said she could finally rest and she could go to sleep. But sometimes her worry just got downright silly. This is a true story. She would probably deny it, but I vividly remember it because I thought it was just utterly ridiculous. One Saturday, her beloved Nebraska Cornhuskers football team was playing. Every radio throughout the entire house was tuned to the game. All of a sudden, sometime in about, I think it was the third quarter, the Huskers fumbled the ball. She got so upset, so worried that they were now going to lose the game, she went around the house, turned every radio off, and just like, that's it, I'm not listening. They were up 35 to 7 at that point. I think they won like 63-14. I mean, they just slaughtered their opponent. But one fumble was enough to cause her to think, that's it, they're going to lose it, they'll never win another game. And and she just would shut everything down. This is how much my mom used to worry. If you met my mom now, you would just be like, wow, you've really changed. And I really think it's the work of God and, and the gospel in her life. She doesn't worry nearly as much as she used to. But if you are a bit of a worrywart like she used to be, you understand the the feeling, just the constant worrying that goes on. You worry about your job. You worry about the kids. You know, you worry about when your kids go off to camp. You worry about your loved ones while they're away on business or when they're traveling in their car. You you think they're going to get in a car wreck. You know, you you worry when the phone rings. You worry when your boss says, come into my office. Uh, You worry about your your bank account, retirement. I mean, you, you worry that you worry too much. I mean, it's just constant, and you're always worrying. I remember one Sunday at church, I was about a freshman in high school, and uh, another mom in our church, she was a fellow worrier like my mom, and I remember her talking to her son, who was a senior in high school, and he's getting, he was telling her something, and she's getting all worked up. She's like, oh, John, and you could just see, like, the worrying, the stress, the anxiety rising, and all of a sudden, John turns to her and says, oh, mom, don't get your panties in a bunch. And all of us standing around just busted up laughing. Just this idea of don't get your panties in a bunch. Well, guess what? Today, we're going to hear Jesus tell us, don't get your panties in a bunch. All right? He's going to say, don't get your underwear in a bundle over things like food, clothing. All right? Don't get your knickers in a twist over, you know, things like the future. Instead, rest. Rest in me. Do not worry because I have not created you to worry. I've got something better for you. So if you are a bit of a worrier, this message is for you. 
And even if you're not really much of a worrier, this message is for you. All right, so if you're a little worried about what we're going to hear today, let me pray. Father, as we come to the scriptures, I pray and ask that you would be our ultimate teacher. Whether my voice is strong enough, your voice has been speaking clearly through your word for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And it has impacted people in different cultures at different times. And here we are right now in Waverly, Iowa in 2016, and we're coming to this passage, and you have something here for us. So help us to hear it today. Help us to be willing to lay down our worry and to seek you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, normally when we pray, you've noticed I like going straight from prayer into the scripture because I just like the idea of us talking to God, opening up our hearts and our minds to what he has to say to us, and then we launch into the scriptures. But today, I want us to really understand a little bit of the mindset of Jesus' listeners when he was first preaching this. And so I want us to kind of stop before we get to the scriptures and use our imaginations. And what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that you are living in 1883. I know, it seems a bit odd, but stick with me. In 1883, the North uh, Railway Line, the Northern Railway Line was completed. It went all the way from the Pacific Ocean in Washington State to the Great Lakes in Minnesota. And so it opened up the whole northern part of the U.S., but especially the west, areas like Montana and Idaho, very sparsely populated areas. And so, to kind of get people ready for this uh, railway being completed in 1883, Congress passed the Act, the Homesteaders Act, in 18, I think it was 62. All right? And so, they were trying to get people to head out there. Well, imagine you're living out east, life is a struggle, you're not making ends meet, and the Civil War is really beginning to go nuts. And so you decide, I'm going to head out and take advantage of this. So you head out to Montana. Think about it, Montana. I mean, this is big sky country. I mean, there's mountains and lakes and vast pastures. I mean, it is beautiful. We, We just took our daughter Karis to college last summer, and we drove right through Montana on our way to Spokane, Washington. It is gorgeous. It's one of my favorite states in the U.S., And you get 160 acres of it for free. However, the cost was much higher than most people anticipated. Because they had to go out there. And yeah, they got 160 acres. But they had to build their own house. They had to find their own food. They had to find their own water source. If they decided to raise animals, they had to care for their animals as well. They had to prepare to survive the winter. I mean, they had to go and build their own latrine. Right? They had to build outhouses. They had to do everything. This is what a, three modern families discovered in 2001. A PBS put together a show, a reality show, called Frontier House. And they had like 5,000 applicants, and they chose these three families to go and participate. And they had to live as if it was 1883. And so they got about two weeks of preparation. They had all these experts training them on, here's how, what you'll need to do to build a house. And here's what you're going to need to do here. And here's kind of the priorities you're going to need to have. And here's how to plant things and, and do things. And then they basically just sent these families out along with camera crews, and they had to survive for five months. And the goal was, they started in the spring, they had to work through the summer, and they had to start getting ready for the winter. And the goal was, could they amass enough stuff and get ready to survive a Montana winter? 
Now, I watched some clips of the program this week on YouTube, and it was really, really interesting because as the show began, you could see the things that these people were, were worried about. Like, some of the women were worried about not going with makeup. Like, going without, it just seemed ludicrous and crazy to them. They, uh, they, they were trying to sneak it in. There were a couple teenage girls that snuck some uh, uh, makeup in uh, to the trip. They, they couldn't go without it. So some of the young boys, they couldn't imagine life without TV. They, they were worried that they were missing out on video games. Some of the dads, they were worried about, you know, how are we going to know what's going on in the world? And so there is this worrying that was going on. And yet about a month or two into the project, suddenly they weren't worried about TV and, and you know, getting the car gassed up and making the, getting the kids to soccer practice. They suddenly were worried about how are we going to keep our cow alive? How, how are we going to get enough food? Like, we're going hungry. How are we going to make it? it? It suddenly became not about makeup and TV. It, it became just about survival. Now what I want you to do is I want you to take away the modern conveniences of 1883. Take away firearms. Take away the cast iron stove. Take away canned goods. And that's what life was like for Jesus' audience. No electricity. No running water. You have to build your own house. You have to build your own latrine. You have to find your own way to make ends meet. And so your entire life is focused on getting food and getting clothing and getting shelter and trying to make it so that you and your family can survive. So now imagine when Jesus stands on top of a mountain, his disciples are sitting there at his feet, and the crowds are listening in, and suddenly they hear these unexpected words from Jesus. That brings us to Matthew chapter 6. We pick it up in verse 25. So therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And, and why are you anxious about clothing? But consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet, I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So imagine, day in, day out, your focus has been on making sure that you and your kids have enough to eat, that your house stays over your head, that it can keep the elements out, that you have enough crops for you and your animals, that, that your focus is all on just sustaining life. And now you hear this guru, this rabbi, standing up on top of a mountain, and he says, don't worry about it. 
it would have sounded like bad advice. In fact, to the worry warts in the audience, it probably would have sounded like a death sentence. It sounds crazy. And yet, Jesus makes a very simple argument. It's right there in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I just want you to know, God loves birds. And I don't say that because my last name's Bird. All right? But God loves the birds. All right? I, I honestly believe that when the birds are out singing, much of what they're singing is praise to God. We don't understand it. But God sure does. The sun starts rising. They start singing. They're announcing, it's another day. God's given us another day. And they rejoice. God loves the birds. And yet, they're not having to go out and plant anything. They're not harvesting their own little bug collections to feed themselves. They, they don't create silos and store their things. But yet, they always have food. They go out and they, they just find it. God regularly feeds them. But birds don't have the imago day. They do not have the image of God put upon them. Only humans do. There is something different about humanity compared to the rest of creation. Yes, creation tells us about the glory of God. But not anything like you can tell about the glory of God. Because you bear the imago day. And so if God's image is upon you, then how much more will God take care of you than a bird? That's his argument. It's simple. It's small. If God could take care of the smallest of these, don't you think he could take care of you? He makes the same argument about clothing by pointing to flowers. He says, they're gorgeous. They're beautiful. I tell you, not even Solomon, when he was at the height of his splendor, looked nearly as good as these flowers. And yet these flowers grow for a time and then they die. People would just harvest them up and throw them in their oven, use them for fuel so they could cook their meal. He says, if this is how God treats flowers, don't you think he can get clothing for you? Jesus almost begins to mock warriors in verse 27. Look at it there. He says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? I learned this week that the Greek phrase there is actually, how many of you can add a cubit to his stature? Some scholars think this really means that what Jesus was saying is, how many of you can make yourself taller through worry? Right? But the majority of scholars, and, and you notice this then in, in your translation, most of them say, how much of you can add an hour or a day to his life? Some people think it was just an idiom for, for time. But whether he's talking about adding to your height and stature, which I probably could use some help with, or adding, you know, length to your life. The point is, how many of you can improve your life through worrying? None of you. In fact, we now know that worrying detracts from life. It diminishes it. It pulls away. If you go on WebMD and you just type in health effects of worrying, you start seeing lists. That how it starts affecting your appetite, how it affects your relationships, it affects your job performance, it affects your quality of sleep. I mean, it begins to affect everything. And none of that is adding to your life. It's not giving that abundant life that Jesus promised he came to give. So maybe Jesus's words aren't a death sentence. Maybe it's actually life-giving. 
maybe he's trying to help his first century audience as well as his 21st century audience to realize you don't have to worry. Worry actually pulls away from the life I intended for you. So don't worry. Don't get your knickers in a twist. Don't get your panties in a bunch. But then notice, Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, don't worry. He actually replaces it. He says, rather than going seek the things of this earth, I want you to seek something else. And we see that in verse 33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. If you are not a follower of Jesus yet, I want you to know this is the key, one of the key verses in all of the scriptures. This is what Christianity is about. It is seeking Jesus, putting him first. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, I would say you should memorize this verse and make it a key verse of your life. Because it's so key and critical, we're going to stop right here on this verse and we're going to break it down to its three phrases and look at each phrase. The first phrase there, but seek first the kingdom of God. Well, when I was breaking this down, the first thing that came to my mind was, what is the kingdom of God? Well, a kingdom was the territory over which a king reigned. And so therefore, the kingdom of God would be the territory over which God reigns. However, as you study through the scripture, you don't see God concerned about gaining a certain earthly territory. It seems that God is far more concerned about people, about humans, because it's in them is that imago Dei, the image of God. And so it seems that the kingdom of God is God's territory of people. It's over hearts. It's over lives. Well, this kingdom of God, it has a dual aspect to it. It's both now here and not yet. It's the now, not yet. It's now here because Philippians 2 tells us that because Jesus came to earth, humbled himself to take on human flesh, and even went so far as to humble himself to death, and he died a sinner's death, even though he had never sinned, God therefore exalted him to the highest place, put him on the throne. Jesus is now king, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus is king. And that's true. Jesus died on the cross, so he's now on the throne in heaven. He is king. He's reigning. And we know that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's also omnipotent. He has all power. And so therefore, the kingdom of God is here and Jesus is reigning. And many of you would claim, yes, I follow Jesus. He's my king. And you now experience the kingdom of God. However, all of us could look out and see That there's areas in life where you don't see the kingdom of God. There are people that do not bow their knee. They do not confess Jesus is Lord. And so we start realizing that like the kingdom of God, I mean, it's here, it's now, but it's not yet fully realized. That's why we seek it. We seek it for ourselves, but we also seek it for others. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But before we do, We've got to see that seeking the kingdom of God is setting Jesus up as our king. By the way, I believe that everyone is looking for a king. Everyone wants a king to serve, a king to worship. We saw this some last week. Remember, we saw how there were kings of attention and kings of possession. The hypocrites, 
Remember, Jesus was talking about how they want attention. It's like they serve this king. And so they would go and they would use giving. They would use prayer. They would use fasting to try and gain attention from others. And that became their king. Other people, they, they would use possessions. They, they'd make that their king. Their life is all about acquiring and getting. But what did Jesus warn us? You can't serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And yet they try to make this their king. There, there are all sorts of kings that we try to, to see, that we try to worship. But Jesus, as we saw last week, and he's saying again this week, if you truly want to have peace, if you don't want to be anxious, if you want to find this meaning in life, you need me as your king. You need me to be king of your heart. So that's what it means to seek the kingdom of God. It's setting Jesus up as your king. But Jesus gives us a second phrase. He says to not only seek the kingdom of God, he says to also seek his righteousness. Righteousness. What is righteousness? It's, it's a state of being right. Imagine you have been drugged before a court, put in front of a judge. You're being accused of a crime that you did not commit. And so when the judge looks at you and says, are you guilty or not guilty? You can say with an absolute clean conscience, not guilty. And you trust that the evidence will prove itself out, that you are not guilty at all. The problem is spiritually, we are guilty. All of us. The scripture says that all have sinned. All fall short of God's standard. So every human who bears that Imago Dei, has sinned against God and therefore is not righteous. And yet Jesus walks into that courtroom, puts his arm around us, looks up at the judge and says, I paid it for him. He had no sin. He was completely righteous. And yet he stepped in and took the penalty for us. So as the judge is getting ready to say guilty, Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know they're guilty. I paid it. So it's done. They're free to go. So justice has been served. And so when you seek his righteousness, you're saying, I'm accepting what he's done on my behalf. And so to seek his righteousness gets down to the core of the gospel. It's recognizing that Jesus went and died on a cross to redeem you from your broken and imperfect life and begin the restoration process to make you perfect and complete like him. That way you can then go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. So Jesus isn't just inviting us to seek the kingdom and make him king of our life. He's also inviting us to seek his righteousness, to take his righteousness and make it our righteousness, that it covers us, that we would be Jesus-centered people, that at the core of who we are is the gospel. And then he says, because you've sought first the kingdom, you've set me up as your king, you've sought out my righteousness, I will add these things to you. You do not have to fear. So don't focus on the things. Focus on me. Seek me first. Seek my kingdom. Seek my righteousness. I'll take care of the rest. Now, a couple disclaimers on this. The first disclaimer is don't seek God to get the things. I, I've actually known some people who they see what they want in life 
And so they try to use God to get them. In Jesus' audience, it would have been food, clothing, shelter. So they hear this, oh, seek first God, and then all these things will be added to you. So their end game is to get the stuff. So they think, oh, so if I just pray enough and read enough and do enough, then God's going to give me all these things. So really, it's not about God. It's about the things. But that's trying to use God like he's a chess piece on the board. But God's not a player in the game of life. He created the game of life. That's why you can't use him to get what you want. The reason you see God is to get God. Because once you've got God, you, you basically have everything. I mean, it's, this is it. Because this life, it's temporary. It's just for the now. And one day it will end. I don't know if you realize this, but the mortality rate is 100% for humanity. And so it, it's, your life's going to end. What comes after it? If your life is in God, not that much changes. Because you had God here, you'll have God there. And so life continues. So it's just eternal life. But if your life is about the things and you're simply trying to use God to get the things, then when this life ends, you don't get the things. And so you really no longer need God. That's why you don't use God to get the things. You seek God to get God. So that's the first disclaimer. The second disclaimer is that you do not seek God as an excuse then to get away from work. The gospel is not a welfare system. It is not a resort, right? Jesus did not die on the cross so that you could simply go and lay in your spiritual hammock, have your little fruity drink, and God walks up to you and says, would you like some food? Would you like some clothing? Here's a little bit of shelter. No, there's a, I don't have time to go into it, but just real quick, a theology of work. God has created us to work. I used to think that work was a punishment for the sin of Adam. It wasn't. God actually gave Adam a job before Adam ever ate of the forbidden fruit. So God designed Adam to work because Adam bore the image of God. And God is a working God. I mean, he worked to create the world. He, he's worked to sustain life. So God is not opposed to work. Work is not a punishment. Work is actually a good thing. I mean, just look at Jesus. When he comes to earth, he took on a profession. He was a carpenter. He worked with stone and with, with wood. That's what carpenters in the first century did. All right? So he'd spend time chiseling the stone, building things. He worked. And he even went and did the ultimate work. He went and died on the cross for us. He took on our sin. He did it all. So God is not opposed to work. In fact, he designed you for it. And so when you go to work, work as if God's your boss. I mean, just go at it. Work hard. Honor him. This is actually worship. You were designed for this. Some of you have incredible gifts and talents and insights and, and, and intelligence that he wants you to use in your job. He's designed you for this. And when you live that way, when you work hard like that, you'll be a blessing to your boss. Or if you're the boss, you'll be a blessing to your employees. You'll be a blessing to your coworkers. You'll be a blessing to your clients and, or your customers. Like, people will be drawn to you because you will work so hard. Because you understand that God's designed me for this. This is the job he's given me. So I'm going to give myself to it. Now, the chances are God's going to use that job to provide all these things to you. This is how you're going to get your food. This is going to how you get your clothing. This is going to how you're going to keep the roof over your head. It's through your work. But when you seek first the kingdom of God, if you lose the job, you don't have to panic. 
Because God does not said, hey, work hard and you'll keep your job. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. So he can keep your job, or if you lose it, he can provide you with another. He can provide you with the funds you need. So when the bills start mounting up, don't panic. Don't get your panties in a bunch. You just seek his righteousness. You trust him to provide. When, when it just seems like everything's crashing in, hey, don't. Don't lose it. Seek him. Seek him in his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I think that's Jesus' ultimate point in all of this, that seeking God leads to trusting God. Seeking God leads to trusting God. As you seek him in his righteousness and his kingdom, it builds this trust within you. And so you don't have to panic when you don't have the job or you don't have the income or you don't know how you're going to pay for all of it. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. You seek me And as you seek me, you will trust me. I will provide. Now, he may not provide in exactly the way you think he will or should. He sometimes does it in his way. But he still will provide. So you seek him. Now, how do you seek him? Well, I think first, personally, it's getting back to the basics. Seek him through the scriptures. Some of you, in January, we had a bunch of, uh, like, reading plans laid out on the table. And many of you took them. All right, we're, we're now in mid-June. And if you're like me, you kind of got away from your Bible reading plan. If you're still going on it, great. Good job. Keep going. Right? Almost halfway through the year. It's going to be a great year for you. But if you're like me and you kind of got away from it, you know what? Start now. Just pick it up. Who cares that you've maybe not been consistent for the last three, four, five months? Just pick up your Bible and start now. Seek him. Seek his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. Seek him. So get into the scripture. Seek him through prayer. Seek him through worship. If you're you're around town, hey, show up. Come and worship. Because something happens here when God's people come together to worship. Seek him through giving. Seek him through serving. Just seek him. Get back to the basics. Engage in the spiritual disciplines. But I think there's another way that we can also seek the kingdom. And I alluded to it when I was talking about seeking the kingdom of God. I think it happens when we go out and we live our life out there in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, and we actually begin to look around and start asking ourselves, where do I not see the kingdom of God? Where do I not see people making Jesus their king? And then we figure out ways to get in there and do it. For instance, this is part of why I'm passionate about the food bank. Because I believe that in the kingdom of God, no one goes hungry. And yet in this world, there are people who are hungry. And so let's go and try and eradicate that. Let's go and help and serve. Even if it's a simple thing like once a month, helping to hand out canned goods and meats and veggies and and things. Just so people can begin to survive. Let's just help out a little bit. Now, that's not the totality of it. We don't do it just so we can make ourselves feel good. And we don't do it thinking, well, that's all there is to sharing our faith. No, we do this because if the people are hungry, they're not going to hear the gospel. But as we help to feed them, it opens them up to hearing it. Because ultimately what they need is not just more physical food. What they need is the spiritual food of Jesus and the gospel. But this opens up the avenue to it. So we look at it and say, well, in the kingdom of God, there's no hunger. So let's go in and see what we can do to erase that. Because we're doing this out of the gospel. We're seeking first his kingdom. So how does your job change? 
How does your neighborhood change? How does that circle of friends change? If you walked into it and asked yourself, where do I not see the kingdom of God? And how can I bring his righteousness, his gospel into this? So please seek the kingdom of God through the scriptures, through prayer, through spiritual disciplines. But also, how can you not only seek it, but bring the kingdom of God to others? I want to close with a, a story that came to my mind this week. I, I shared a little bit last week that I've got good friends named Stephen Heather who j- were in China last week. They just got back this week. That's actually a picture of uh, Heather with their new little daughter, Lucille. And uh, they got back. They're still going through jet lag. It'll probably take a few weeks to, to readjust. But I've just been so inspired by Stephen Heather and just their desire to just reach out and love these kids. So God blessed them with a, a little girl and a, a son. And yet they just felt God saying, I want you to adopt. So now this is their second Chinese daughter. And these, this couple, is, they're just awesome. But as I've been following their story, I was reminded of, a, of another story I heard. Years ago, I was mowing my lawn, and I was listening to an Andy Stanley sermon. And he shared a story of a woman, a family in his church, who had uh, adopted a little girl from China, much like Stephen Heather. But Andy was sharing how their first week home, the mom put their little girl, and I, I'm thinking she was younger than Lucille. Lucille's about two. Uh, and I think this little girl was probably just, you know, like, I don't know if she was a year old yet. But they, they put her in a high chair, and mom was going to do some stuff in the kitchen. So she just took a box of Cheerios, sprinkled some Cheerios on the tray. I mean, this is what American moms do. And it get, it's good for your kids to work with their fine motor skills, and, you know, they eat a little something. And this mom knew that her Chinese daughter had been a little malnourished, so this was just, you know, kind of adding some food in to her daughter's diet, just trying to, I think, add some meat to her bones. And so the mom sprinkles the Cheerios on it and begins to walk into the kitchen. And immediately she hears something, and she turns around, and there's her little girl reaching and grasping as many Cheerios as she can and stuffing them in her face as fast as possible. And on her face was a look of absolute panic, as if to say, please don't take my Cheerios away. And the mom said it broke her heart. Because first, it helped her see the conditions that maybe her daughter had been in. That maybe that particular orphanage that the girl had been in, that maybe somehow like other kids came and stole the food. Or or maybe it was just she was so malnourished. Or maybe she only got like one meal a day. And this little girl thought, this is it. And she's got to get it as fast as she possibly can. But Andy said it also broke the mother's heart for another reason. Because the little girl didn't realize the truth. She didn't realize what had happened. Because she was no longer in the orphanage. She was now adopted by a mommy and a daddy who loved her and gave her their name. And they had more Cheerios than she could ever imagine. Like, there was more in the box. And if the box went empty, they could just go to the grocery store and give more. This was a mommy and a daddy who could provide for her what she needed. And yet the little girl is acting like, this is it. This is all I get. When we worry about food about clothing, about shelter, about our kids, about our jobs, about anything. We're revealing that we're back in the orphanage and we're not recognizing God as our daddy. We're not setting up Jesus as our king. We're not trusting him because we're worrying and we're reaching and we're grabbing and we act as if he doesn't have it. And yet we have a loving heavenly daddy that has more than we could ever imagine, who loves us so much that all these things can be added to you. 
But what he knows is best for you and best for me is that we first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's why Jesus says, don't get your panties in a bunch. Don't get worked up. Don't get anxious. Trust me. Instead of keeping your eyes on the things of this earth, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Father, it's easy to say it's another thing to live. It's difficult sometimes to truly trust. We feel like that little girl in the high chair. And we just reach and we clamor and we grab. And yet you tell us to first seek you. Because seeking you is going to lead to trusting you. So God, I ask that you would build our faith individually. That you you would help every person here who proclaims the name of Jesus. That they would put you first in their life. That you would be their king. And they would accept your righteousness as their own. Making the gospel the center of their life and their being. And that would then impact them. This was what would allow them to go and be able to share freely with others. Because they don't have to worry. Because you're going to provide for them. It's how they can be so generous because they don't have to worry. They've got a heavenly daddy who can provide what they need. But God, I also pray that you'd forgive us for the times that you've given us what we've needed and we haven't thought it was enough. God, help our trust to be so great that when we don't get the job we want, we've got to trust that you have something better for us. When the relationship doesn't work out exactly like we wanted it to, it's okay because you've got something better for us. And when something happens to one of our kids, we don't have to get angry at you because what Satan intended for evil, you can work for good. And we've got to trust you as our king, that you've, that you've got this, that you're on your throne and you're in control. So God, we just ask for forgiveness. We confess our worrisome, our weariness to you. Would you please replace it with your gospel? Replace it with Jesus. Give us a desire to seek him and to trust him. Help us, Father, to grow in this because we cannot be the people of God you want us to be if we're worrying. We cannot be the church that you want us to be if we're full of worry. Help us to be a church family that's filled with faith, that trusts you and moves forward in your grace, seeking to go and be a blessing because you got us. We're safe with you. So King Jesus, help us to worship you. Help us to talk to you. Help us to surrender to you. To allow you to be our king. To give your righteousness to us. And that we would live that gospel out as we go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.